0: children here today. Uh, for many of you, he's almost a stranger. Maybe you hear the Sunday he preached before, and if not, you have never seen him before. But for the search committee, for the council, for myself, he's uh, become uh, a well-known uh, good friend. I think I've been with him four different times, and so I know a little bit about him. Uh, he's not quite a local native, but he grew up on Whidbey Island. That's pretty close, and it's, it's a nice place to grow up, and his wife, uh, too, grew up there. I understand that they grew up in the same church from the time that they were ages two and four. So they're getting to know each other pretty well now. And so uh, he went to school uh, in in Seattle, and he went to school up in in Vancouver uh, at Regent College. So he's a Northwest sort of guy, and uh, we're happy to have such a guy here. But the biggest thing is he's an Old Testament scholar. He uh, knows the word. He loves the word. And I'm just happy for you to hear him. Again, bring God's word to you. So Nathan, come and preach your heart out.
1: In one of his essays, uh, Wendell Berry recounts the following piece of family history. One night in the winter of 1907, at what we have always called the home place in Henry Henry County, Kentucky, my father, then six years old, sat with his older brother and listened as their parents spoke of the uses they would have for the money from their 1906 tobacco crop. The crop was to be sold at auction in Louisville the next day. They would have been sitting in the light of a kerosene lamp close to the stove, warming themselves before bedtime. They were not wealthy people. I believe that the debt on their farm was not fully paid. There would have been interest to pay. There would have been other debts. The depression of the 1890s would have left them burdened. But perhaps after the income from the crop had paid their obligations, there would be some money they could spend as they chose. At around 2 o'clock the next morning, my father was wakened by a horse's shod hooves on the stones of the driveway. His father was leaving to catch the train to see the crops sold. When he came home that evening, as my father would later put it, uh, he came home that evening, as my father later would put it, without a dime. After the crop had paid its transportation to market and the commission on its sale, there was nothing left. When we hear a story like this, we can ask ourselves, what's even the point of working? Why do we work? It seems fundamentally absurd that a family could work for a year and basically gain nothing from it. Maybe you've had a similar situation or similar experiences, lost a job or had a business uh, go under, and it's forced you to ask similar questions. Our text this morning, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1 and a portion of chapter 2, teaches us how to think about such things. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 647, uh, and for reasons I'll explain in just a moment, I'm going to read our text this morning in two chunks. So uh, verses one through eleven of chapter one, and then later in the sermon a bit from chapter two. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter one verse one: This is God's word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been done in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Now, before we jump into the details of this text, we need to look at the big picture of the book of Ecclesiastes briefly. It's a very strange book if you've read through Ecclesiastes before. Uh, Throughout the book, the preacher, as the the speaker in this book is, is called, or perhaps the teacher, operates in two basic modes. The first and dominant mode we might call demolition or deconstruction. And that is what we will hear in our first and longest point. Our work is but a fleeting breath. And if the preacher only worked in this demolition mode, if he only told us that all things are weary and all is vanity, this would be a depressing book indeed. But the preacher in this text works in a second mode, that we might call rebuilding, and this will give us our second point this morning, that in Christ, our work endures. So, keeping that in mind, that there's two modes and two basic points, that our work is but a fleeting breath, and yet in Christ, our work endures, let us turn then to this first point, our work is but a fleeting breath. One of Kelsey and I's favorite shows is Fixer Upper, Uh, and if you've seen the show, you know how excited the remodelers are to rip apart... An old rundown house, busting through walls, tearing out ugly cabinets, smashing windows, and demolishing a rundown house. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher sets himself just as vigorously to spiritual demolition, wrecking through our pretensions of enduring significance, exploding our sense that life is always wonderful, cutting down our ambition to achieve, to be big, to be smart. You won't make it, the preacher says. No matter how carefully we plan, no matter how hard we work, no matter how ambitious we are, our lives take baffling turns and our world can be bewildering. In our passage here in verses 2 through 11, we see that our work is but a fleeting breath by considering our work in relation to vanity, our work in relation to gain in verse 3, our work in relation to natural cycles in verses 4 through 8, and our work and the cycles of history in verses nine through 11. Let us then first consider our work in relation to vanity, looking at verse two in your Bible. Verse two is in fact the thesis statement for the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanity. All is vanity. This key term vanity is repeated 30 times throughout the book. And this opening thesis statement is repeated in full at the end of the book in chapter 12, verse eight. But what does vanity mean? The Hebrew term hebel, translated as vanity, literally refers to a vapor or a mist or a breath. If you step outside on a cold morning and you breathe out, what do you see? Hebel, a breath, a vapor. But it's only there for a moment and then it's gone. All things are merely a breath on a cold day, claims the preacher. All things are fleeting and passing. Since some translations, instead of using vanity, use terms like meaningless or pointless, let's look quickly at some other passages where this key term is used to illustrate the meaning of this term. In Psalm 39, uh, we read, O Lord, make me know my ends and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my life is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. There's our key term. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely as a breath they are in turmoil. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. And again in Psalm 144, verse 4, man is like a breath. There's our key term. His days are like a passing shadow. The emphasis wherever this term is used is not on the pointlessness of human life, but rather on the fleeting, transitory, passing nature of human life. You can see another characteristic of vapor or breath. If you ever watch a child trying to catch their breath on a cold day, it's elusive. You just can't get a grasp on it. You can't fix it in place. So we could restate this thesis statement in verse two as a fleeting breath, says the preacher, a fleeting breath. Everything is but a breath. And what a troubling thesis this is. Everything in creation, is a fleeting breath everything wears out our parents age our children age our world changes and before we know it our very lives are slipping through our fingers so what does this teach us about our work what it teaches us is that we cannot make a mere breath the basis for significance and meaning and meaning in our life ecclesiastes tells us that everything under the sun is but a breath. Does that include our work? Sure, it does. Our work seems so important, so pivotal to our identities, to our source of ourself, but at the end of the day, our work is a fleeting breath. Moving on to verse 3, we need to consider our work and gain. Having given us his conclusion up front that all is vanity, the preacher in verse 3 asks explicitly about the significance of work. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Here we find three more key terms of the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole. The first term, gain, refers to what is left over or what remains. The question then is about the bottom line. At the end of the day, at the end of our life, what is the profit from all of our work? What will remain when we die? The second term, toil, means hard work. But this is not necessarily a negative thing. Work is not a punishment for sin, although sin corrupts our work. Work contributes to the good of the community, and it's what Adam was created to do, to work the garden. And if work is part of our created nature, then no one is exempt from work simply by virtue of age. Young folks, your work is your studies and your chores. Retirees, you too are called to to contribute to your community in a variety of ways. The third key term in this this, uh, question is under the sun. It's used 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it points to the empirical focus of the book. This book is about life in the world. The question is what we can gain in the here and now that might have eternal significance. Putting these pieces together, then, the question of verse 3 is what surplus is generated? What kind of profit do we accrue through our labor? What do we gain in this life that will last beyond our death. Ask yourself this question with full seriousness. What am I really gaining from my work? What will I have to show for it? What do we gain from our work in the world? The implied answer of Ecclesiastes is nothing. You can be successful in your career, you can amass a fortune, you can even be nationally recognized in your field, but one day you will have to retire. One day, death will separate you from your achievements. Our work may be important, but it does not ultimately justify us. At the end of the day, at the end of our life, nothing is left over. As Jesus himself asks, What will it profit a man, even if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his life? What will he give in return for his life? So we see in verses 2 and 3, that life is but a fleeting breath, and our work has no lasting gain. Next, Ecclesiastes proves that our work is but a fleeting breath by comparing it to the cycles of nature and of history. This is, uh, first, the cycles of nature in verses 4 through 8. Here, Ecclesiastes launches into this series of investigations to determine what a person gains from all their toil. Looking at the cycles of nature, uh, it, it, there's a very carefully structured poem here. Each element, a generation, the sun, the wind, the streams, and the sea is named twice in its respective verse, where all the, while all the verses are tied together by the repeated verbs, goes and comes. Listen to it again. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. Generations, usually we say come and go, but in verse 4, the word order is reversed. They go and come, emphasizing that one generation replaces the next, but beneath it all, the earth remains the same. And the sun, too, never rests. It continually moves, hurrying back, literally panting back to the place where it came from only to rise again. The wind blows ceaselessly north and south, complementing the east-west movement of the sun, showing that at all four points of the compass, everywhere, creation is ceaselessly working. Streams endlessly run, but the sea will never fill up. This is all summarized in verse 8. All things are hard at work. And verse 8 continues, describing the human response to these vast and intricate cycles of the world. Words fail. Eyes can't take it in. Ears can't grasp all that is happening. In short, creation escapes human mastery. Note, though, that Ecclesiastes doesn't reject our longing for significance in the world. In fact, a couple chapters later, in chapter 3, verse 11, it affirms it, saying, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find what God has done from the beginning to the end. There is a holy restlessness in the human heart. Or as Augustine puts it in the opening lines of his confessions, you, God, made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it comes to rest in you. What does this reflection on the cycles of nature teach us about our work? Three things. First, it teaches us that creation is busy doing the things that God has designed it to do. What has God designed you to do? Are you busy doing it? Second, the passage affirms that it is natural for us to long for significance and satisfaction in our work in the world. But third, this reflection demonstrates that nothing is gained by all the toil at which a man toils under the sun. In the massive cycles of the natural world, nothing is ever gained, there's no surplus or leftovers. There's no no year where we had enough spring one year, and so the next year we don't have a spring. The cycles continue endlessly. And why should we expect our work to be any different? Our work is like the winds, the tides, and the rivers. Our work is a fleeting breath. Finally, in verses 9 through 11, Ecclesiastes turns to the cycles of history to make the same point. What has been is what will be, and what has been done. Is what will be done there is nothing new under the sun is there a thing of which it is said see this is new it has already been done in the ages before us there is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of things yet to be among those who come after our text concludes that there is no gain in the movements of history there is nothing new under the sun what has been done is what will be done You think you've figured out something new to do? Nope, it's already been done. And whatever we do accomplish will be forgotten one day anyways. Did you know that in the 13th century AD, Angkor Wat in Cambodia was the largest urban center in the world? It may have actually been the largest urban center in all history up until the Industrial Revolution. And not only was it a massive city, its temple complex is one of the largest religious structures ever built. And yet, it has all been forgotten. None of us remember the names of the rulers who founded the city or the builders who built these temples. Most of us couldn't even find Angkor Wat on a map, perhaps not even be able to find Cambodia on a map. Hindus built the temple but it was later rededicated as a Buddhist temple. Even the people who worshipped in that temple forgot the religion for which it was built. And then the city was eventually abandoned and taken back over by the jungle, and now no one lives there. You can literally build one of the biggest cities in history, one of the biggest cities of all time, but eventually you and the city that you built will be forgotten and reconquered by the cycles of nature. Just as reflecting on the natural cycles illustrates that nothing can be gained under the sun, so the historical cycles show us that our work is but a fleeting breath. Your work may transcend your death. Let's be honest. Probably none of us in this room will be remembered in a century. But you may make something or do something that lasts decades or even centuries. But in light of eternity, it is but a breath, a passing shadow, a vapor that is blown away. There is nothing that you can lay up, that you can gain, that will give ultimate significance to your life. What has been is what will be, and there is no remembrance of former things. From this point, in verse 12 and following, the preacher in Ecclesiastes here takes up further investigations, asking what a person can gain through their work and in the world. At chapter 2, verse 11, he writes, I considered all that my hands had done, all the toil I had expended doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. But that just makes our point again. Our work is a fleeting breath. Well, you may be saying to yourself, this certainly makes for a dreary Sunday morning. And if the preacher only worked in this demolition mode, this would be a very depressing book indeed. But weaved in with this theme of demolition is a minor theme, uh, another motif. The preacher tells us the secret, if we have ears to hear it, the secret of total joy. This theme is minor in terms of the word count, and yet it is actually the central message of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Just like in Fixer Upper, they don't do demolition just to vandalize a house, but in order to rebuild. So Ecclesiastes does demolition work in our hearts to prepare the way for good news, the secret of joy. And now I turn the page and read from chapter 2, verses 22 through 26. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing but uh, better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he has given the busyness of life and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Here we find a second great truth about work. Our work is but a breath, and yet in Christ, our work endures. In the second part of our text, the preacher turns from demolition to his first bit of reconstruction. He initially poses that question again in 2.22, asking what can we gain? And he continues in his somber tone. There is, uh, all of our days are full of sorrow and work is a vexation. This also is vanity. But at this point, then, the preacher turns the corner and introduces his second theme. He says there is nothing better. What striking words. This author looks at the cycles of nature and history. He considers work and leisure, wisdom and foolishness and concludes there is nothing better we better perk up our ears then and listen what is it that there is nothing better than there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find joy in his work well this is baffling how can this be how can we find joy and meaning and significance in our work if our work is merely fleeting passing vanity and vexation Ecclesiastes does not fully unpack this truth for us. It tells us there's joy in our labor. It tells us that this joy is from the hand of God, and it points the way forward. But we have to listen to this truth as fully revealed in the New Testament to really understand what Ecclesiastes points forward to. The preacher tells us right here in verse 24, chapter 2, verse 24, it is from the hand of God that joy is given. We can find true joy in our work, in our jobs, in our studies, in service to the church, in parenting, and in caring for our parents, in the things we will do tomorrow morning. We can find true joy only when our work is united to Christ's work. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In Christ, our work endures. Here is the paradox. At the heart of this passage, we long for something of enduring significance and meaning. And we use our work to try and gain something that will last, some meaning, some significance. But Ecclesiastes says death is the great equalizer. It levels all accomplishments. It puts the lie to our attempts to gain something of eternal significance. But in Jesus, the eternal has become man and has been subject to death. We try to cheat death through our work, but Christ's death is his work. As as he's dying on the cross, uh, he, for the first time in all of human history, can say, it is finished. A work has been completed, finally. Here is a work of eternal significance, of perfect obedience to God, the righteous suffering, suffering, the penalty due to sinners. In Christ, our work endures. All things are full of weariness, and there is nothing new under the sun, but here is something new. Christ says, I come to bring a new covenant. And in Revelations, he promised, I am making all things new. In Jesus' very death, there is finally something new. The weariness of the world is imbued with a new energy. The cycles of history are interrupted by the inbreaking of God become man. Here at last is a work under the sun that gains something. We must put our hope, our faith, not in our own work, but in Jesus Christ's work on our behalf. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines faith as a saving grace whereby we receive and rest in Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. We receive and rest in Christ alone. Perhaps you have not received Jesus Christ. Maybe your career is going very well and your work is satisfying. And you perhaps think to yourself, you don't need any of this. Hear me now. Your job will not always be satisfying. You will run into frustration. One day you will retire. And no matter how good you are at your job, no matter how much money you make, it will all eventually be forgotten. And if this Your job is the foundation you build your life upon. Your whole life will be nothing but a fleeting breath. Maybe you know all this. Maybe your work is falling apart, you've been laid off. Maybe you know that your work has gained you nothing. Friend, receive Christ and rest in him. When Jesus was crucified, shortly before he said, it is finished, he had a conversation with the man being crucified next to him. This man was a criminal who was justly being punished For his crimes he knew that within years or even weeks like all things he would be forgotten he knew that he had never done anything in his life to deserve to be remembered but he turned to jesus and he asked him short of breath dying he asks jesus remember me when your kingdom when you come into your kingdom you will one day be forgotten your work will be forgotten Everything you ever do will one day be forgotten by this world, but Jesus will remember you. Others of us have received Christ, and yet it is a constant challenge to remember to rest in him. And so we must ask, how does our work find true meaning in Christ? How from the hand of God do we find true joy in our labor? How is it that in Christ our work endures? First, we have to stop chasing the wind. We have to stop trying to catch our breath to build our lives on a foundation of vapor. If you try to build a meaningful life on the basis of created things alone, on your work, it won't work. Your attempts will be frustrated. Second, our work and every aspect of our lives must be built on the firm foundation of Christ's work. It must begin by resting in him. Joy in our work begins with our faith, our resting in Christ. If we begin with his, it is finished. Our daily work can be just that, mundane daily work. We don't need to try and turn our jobs into a source of ultimate meaning. Our value is not tied to our job. If you set to work tomorrow morning, resting in Christ alone, you can find joy in your toil. You can take risks. So what if you fail? You are loved by the eternal God. You can be passed over for promotion without being bitter. Promotions are only a fleeting value anyways. You can face unemployment. Your true value is not in your bank account, but it is hidden with Christ. You can be calm with your children. Your true identity is not at stake in your parenting. Or you may be retired or nearing retirement and struggling to find your identity in this new stage of life. And this is certainly understandable, and there is no easy answer. But remember that your true meaning The true meaning of your life is not found in the career that you have retired from, but it is found in Christ's work for you, his death for you, friend. In Christ, our work endures. If you have received Christ, are you resting in him? Are you resting in the work that he has finished? There's a peculiar rhythm to the Christian life. We begin the week on Sunday not by working, but by resting, resting in the work of Christ. By singing, by praying together, by receiving his word, by resting in his word. Because of Christ's work, Ecclesiastes 9.7 now makes sense. We will go in a a few minutes. We will eat our bread with joy. Uh, We perhaps will not drink our wine with a merry heart, but we can drink our wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. This passage is set before us this morning. Two great truths. First, our work in ourselves is but a fleeting breath. What does a man gain by all his toil under the sun? We can look at the cycles of nature and history. We can see that although we are called to join all creation in working, we cannot gain anything of eternal value by ourselves. The cycles of nature will continue long after our death. History will march on. But in Christ, our work endures. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Here, in Christ's work, is something new, something that is not vanity of vanities. Friends, come and rest in the work of Christ. Rest knowing that he has finished his work, the true work of eternal significance. Come and eat and drink and find enjoyment in your toil. This also is from the hand of God. Let us pray. Gracious Father, All our work is but a fleeting breath in the light of your eternity. All that we have done and will do will be blown away and long forgotten. And yet you, the eternal God, have not abandoned us to the march of history, but you, the eternal God, have become man and have done a work on our behalf, a work which we did not deserve and which we cannot even fully comprehend. But in that work, the work of Christ, God become man, Something is finally gained which gives meaning and significance to all things, to history, to nature, and to our lives. I ask this morning for each of us that our hearts would find true rest in receiving and resting in Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel and the good news. I ask for those who perhaps have not received Christ that they would be challenged by the preacher in Ecclesiastes that this challenge would be uh, like a thorn in their flesh that they would not be able to easily forget. I ask for those of us who have received Christ that we would remember and continually return to rest in him, to find our significance in his work, not in our own work. We ask all this by the name of your Son and in the power of your Spirit. Amen.